turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to continue on in our series in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4 really concludes the introductory section of uh, the books, 1 and 2 Samuel. Really, there are two volumes, but one, one document. And in these first chapters, we see the state of Israel at the end of the period of the judges and the sorry state that it really is in, the priesthood being corrupt and the people being confused, suffering, and God is doing something new in their day. There are um, many people we've been introduced to in these first chapters. We have, of course, uh, Hannah and her husband, and Elkanah and their son Samuel, who has now been brought into Eli's care in the tabernacle in Shiloh. And Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are the priests in this day. And we have learned that their leadership has been... Um, in many ways, uh, contemptuous toward the Lord, rebelling against the Lord. And by now, in this point in our series, God has made himself known to Eli and his sons on multiple occasions. First through uh, anonymous man of God who comes and rebukes them in chapter 2, and Eli does not respond to such rebuke, and then in chapter 3, God raises up Samuel to be a prophet in these days and speaks through Samuel to Eli and speaks of what the Lord is going to do in bringing this, uh, this family's priesthood there to an end. And so we come to chapter 4. And there is, uh, quite honestly, there's a hard lesson in chapter 4. When you read chapter 4 on its own, it doesn't really seem like there's much hope. It seems very bleak. It seems depressing almost. And yet the truth is, when you look at the bigger story, you see this is actually good news. This is the Lord doing a great thing for his people. This is the Lord bringing something that was um, hurtful to his people to an end and starting something new. And really the message that I think we'll see in this chapter for Samuel 4 is this. The Lord will gain glory according to his schedule and his scheme even by judgment and tragedy and loss. We're going to see judgment and tragedy and loss. We're going to see some heartbreaking things happen, really, in chapter 4. And you might think, what is going on here? The phrase that rings in our ears at the end, the glory of God is departed. And yet, what God is doing is He's doing something new there. And God is ensuring that he gains glory on his own terms. 
cannot manipulate the Almighty. You can't twist the arm of God. No, the Lord will gain glory according to His schedule and His scheme, even by judgment and tragedy and loss. And so what we're going to do in looking at this chapter is I'm going to break up the chapter, break up the sermon into three parts. I see in our passage three thrones, if you will, three thrones that are made reference to some a little bit less obviously than others. Three thrones. And in the first 11 verses, I'll read the passage as we go section by section. There's really two sections, but I'm going to talk about three thrones. The first 11 verses, we see this. The exiled throne in Philistia. The exiled throne in Philistia. Let's read these verses together. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent Shiloh and brought from the ark of the covenant of the Lord, from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? They learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage, And be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the exiled throne in Philistia. 
the throne of course, I hope you would uh, pick up on, the throne I'm speaking of is the Ark of the Covenant. Indeed, as it's described, the Lord is enthroned on the cherubim. We need to understand what the Ark of the Covenant is. The Ark of the Covenant is a picture, a symbol, a model, a replica, you might say, of God's throne. When we read the book of Exodus, it's described how it's to be built, how it's to be constructed. And you heard earlier as I was reading Exodus 40, the very careful directions that go into the construction of the ark and other elements in the tabernacle. Everything is to be done according to God's command. That repeated phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses, over and over and over again. God gave very specific directions. You might tune out a little bit and think, well, what's the importance of this? It's important because this is a picture, a replica, a model of God's throne. And not even only a model, but God says His name will dwell there. He will dwell amid His people there in the tabernacle. He will reveal Himself there, speak there, meet there with His people. And so, this is the Holy of Holies. That place in, in the tabernacle where the ark would dwell is the Holy of Holies where the priest would go once a year. And what we have is this ark lost in Philistia. Now let's jump back to the beginning. The Jewish people, the Israelites, they go to battle against the Philistines. This is somewhat common in this period in their history. If you read Judges, they're fighting with the Philistines a bit there too. You go on, you read later on with David and his battles. He's fighting with the Philistines. So battling with the Philistines is pretty normal. Um, They're a, a common enemy to them at this time. But what shouldn't be normal is that they lose in battle. Of course, when God brings His people into the land of promise, He promises to go with them. This is His land that He is giving them. They're to drive out the Canaanites, drive out the nations, so that He might give them this land. And that He might dwell among His people in this land, and there would be no more idolatry and immorality there. And so God is with His people in their battles as they go into the land of Canaan. And it's not expected that they would lose. And it's not expected that they would lose to the idolatrous, wicked Philistines. And yet, they go to battle there, and they lose thousands of foot soldiers. Thousands. 4,000 men died on the field of battle that day. And so, rightfully so, the elders of the people, they come back, and they ask this very important question. This is the right question to ask. Okay, verse four, verse uh, 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today? They understand that God is the one who is overseeing this loss. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why? What went wrong? Now, we're, I think, familiar with 
some of the other Bible stories, but let me draw your attention again to some of the other battles that Israel has fought. You read through the book of Joshua. They go to battle against Jericho. And what happens is God instructs them to take the Ark of the Covenant and encircle Jericho, marching with the Ark of the Covenant. And the walls, of course, fall down. And they're to devote Jericho to destruction. Now that's not normative for all their battles. God gives that direction for that particular battle. It's not that that happens in every single one of their battles, but that's what they do at Jericho. Now, what happens after Jericho is this, Joshua chapter 7. Achan, one of the Israelites, he takes some of the spoils of war, which is to be devoted to destruction. He takes it from the battle of Jericho and he hides it in his tent. All of it was to be destroyed. But Achan secretly steals it for himself. He wants to make a little profit. And so they go into their next battle against Ai in Joshua chapter 7. And what happens is 36 men die. Okay, not 4,000 as in our passage. 36 men die. And Joshua is grieved. He cries out to God. He's questioning what is going on here. What went wrong? He's praying. And he prays before the Ark of the Covenant even says. And he is asking God what went wrong. And what God does is he reveals I'm not with you. If you have devoted things in your midst, if you have taken what is mine for yourself, he will not go with them. And that's why they lost in Ai. But the truth is that Joshua had no idea what Achan did. And they have this way that the Lord, um, the Lord directs where they figure out Achan's sin. He confesses his sin. And though he confesses, what he did was wrong, deserved death. And Achan died for his sin. And after Achan was dead and after that was sorted out, they went into Ai and they won the battle. Now we come to 1 Samuel And what is going on is you do not have secret sin of one man. You have the very public immorality of the priesthood. Eli's sons blaspheming God, taking meat for themselves, threatening violence against God's people if they don't do what they want, uh, fornicating and the rest. All sorts of things. They're holding God in contempt. And it seems everybody knows what's going on here. It's not a secret. It's public. And this is not one man. This is the priesthood. And so they go into battle and they lose. Nobody should even be wondering why. No one should be left guessing what went wrong here. The nation is in sin. And that sin has been pointed out multiple times and there's no repentance. And they go into battle and they lose and they wonder why. And instead of repenting of sin, instead of realizing we need to sort ourselves out here, we need 
to obey God's command in terms of the sacrificial system, in terms of uh, you know the, the immorality that was going on there. They needed to get right with the Lord. And instead, what do they do? They go into the Holy of Holies and they take out the Ark of the Covenant and they presume that they can take the Ark of the Covenant, the very replica of God's throne, and they can take that into battle and, as it were, put God's glory on the line, put his arm behind his back, so to speak, and make God give them victory. Because it's the Ark of the Covenant, after all. God wouldn't let anything happen to the Ark of the Covenant, would he? It's he who is enthroned on the cherubim, the Lord of hosts. Well, everyone is excited when the Ark of the Covenant arrives. Everyone is enthusiastic. They are thrilled. They are cheering. And it goes to show that sometimes enthusiasm and excitement and ecstasy, even for what would seem to be religious things, spiritual things, it can be very much misguided. And in their misguided excitement, they shout, and the other, the other side, the Philistines, become very afraid and it seems that both sides are convinced they're going to, the Philistines are going to lose. The Philistines clearly have no idea who God is. They know a little bit about the Exodus and what happened there. But they're speaking about God as if he's a local deity. They're saying, oh, if God, lowercase g, has come into the camp. Well, we know that the Lord fills heaven and earth. They don't understand that. And... They say, these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the, in the wilderness. And they think that if they muster up enough courage, they can beat God. They can beat the gods of Israel. If they be men and fight, well, they do fight and they do win. And the Ark of the Covenant is lost. This is shocking to all involved. And not only is the ark lost, Hophni and Phineas, these two priests, they die. Fulfilling the prophecy, I'll note, of what that man of God had said earlier, that these two men would die on the same day. They die on the same day, and they die in battle, this battle that they have brought the ark of the covenant into. And so what can we say by way of application, even in looking at this first section? You know, we should be zealous for the Lord, but our zeal must be governed by the truth of God's Word. We must do things, as it says in Exodus 40, as the Lord commanded. As the Lord commanded Moses over and over and over. Very carefully, Both Moses applies all the directions that God has given him. And so our zeal must be according to God's word, and our enthusiasm should also be balanced with humility. And we can't expect that the Lord will bless when we're living in 
unrepentant sin as these men were. Perpetual, unrepentant sin. And beyond that, we need to be very careful that we don't treat God as if He's a genie in a bottle. As one who we can manipulate to get to work things out according to our ends. We can't manufacture revival through uh, programs and campaigns and charisma and lights and music and, and smiling faces and PR and all the rest. We can't manufacture revival and force God to give us the victory, so to speak, and build the church or um, start new churches or advance in the mission field. We can't manufacture these things. God alone will bless as He sees fit. We need to be very careful to do things according to His direction, according to His Word, humbly serving Him, seeking to honor Him through holy lives, through prayer, careful Decisions governed by God's Word. You know, when I was a young Christian in my teen years, I don't remember what the decision was, if it was about uh, a girl I wanted to date or something like that, but I remember praying, Lord, if the flag blows like this, that will mean that maybe it was, this is the woman I will marry or something like that. Obviously, it didn't work out, <laughs> and I'm glad, but, uh, but uh, silly things like that, you know, Gideon put out his fleece, and we don't. We, we should not try to, to imitate that, okay? And make God do things in a way that works out for us in, in ways He's never directed us to do, okay? God has given us direction in His Word, and though He is gracious sometimes, and sometimes He can hit a straight blow with a bench stick, as they say, we should not try to manipulate our maker. And that's exactly what I think they're doing here. And so there is the very ark of God, this exiled throne in Philistia. It's lost. I say exile because really that is later how a word can be translated in, in, um, in verse 22 in another instance. It's departed. And so that is the first throne we'll, we'll see. And the second throne comes up in the second half of this passage, and maybe it's a little less obvious. There is a second throne. The empty throne in Shiloh. We've seen first the exiled throne in Philistia. Now we're going to see second, the empty throne in Shiloh. I'll read the remainder of the passage from verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out, when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli 
was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This throne, not translated in the version I'm using, throne, but there is a throne there in Shiloh. It is the throne of Eli. It's a seat, word translated throne in many other instances. And we have to remember, Eli is the judge of the land. He has been a judge now, it says, 40 years. There is no king at this time, of course. So Eli is as close as it gets. He is the one in charge, and has been for some time, 98 years old. He sits there at the gate, which of course, well, maybe not of course, but you may know is, um, is a place where there would be decision-making among leaders in the time. And this is his place of authority. He sits there on his throne, as he knows the battle rages on. And so, news comes to him from the battlefield with this man. Solemn news. And the nation has just lost thousands upon thousands of men. What was the number? 30,000, I believe? Maybe I'm misremembering. Yes, 30,000 foot soldiers, verse 10 plus the 4,000 before 34,000 men died in battle. Think of how many different families that might represent in Israel. 34,000 men. How many husbands? How many fathers? Brothers? Uncles? Families everywhere be mourning. 
grieving, crying out to God. Wives who lost their husbands, children who lost their fathers, grieving over this great loss. And as the news comes in town, all Eli can hear is people crying, screaming, crying out to God in uproar, outcry. And you know that he knows something is wrong and he wants, he wants to hear it himself. He wants to know what happened. But his first priority is not even his own two sons. His first concern is the ark of God. He knows that it went into battle. He trembles for the ark of God, it says. He knows this is... This is the very model. This is the very replica. This is the, the, the place in this world where God would make Himself known among His people, where God would speak and where God would meet in His people in the Holy of Holies. And He is so concerned that that ark of God might fall in battle and maybe He knows in His heart that they deserve to lose because they have not repented of their sin. So He is concerned and the man comes to him. He says, how did it go, my son? Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Some of you, many of, many of us have sons. Maybe not all of us. Many of us have sons. The heartbreak to lose your sons. I have three sons. I can't imagine the heartbreak. And yet, chief of all, the ark of God has been captured. And when he hears those words, he falls over off his throne, off his seat. He falls off and splits his neck and dies. He mentions that he's old and heavy, and, and perhaps it mentions he's heavy by way of signaling and reminding us how he and his sons had been indulging in those fat offerings. They had been taking the fatty portions for themselves for a long time, habitually, and he did not call his sons to account. He did not restrain them and they blaspheme God, and they abuse their office. And here he is, 98 years old, heavy, and he falls off his chair, and he slits his neck, and he dies. And to add sorrow to sorrow, not only are the free priests of the land now dead, but Phineas. His wife is pregnant. She's lost now both her husband and her father-in-law. And she hears the news. What news? The ark of the God was captured and that her, these two men whom she loves have died. And she, in the, the, the anxiety and the shock, she goes into birth and she dies in childbirth. And the whole story 
is climaxed with her naming her son over the whole tragedy. She names her son Ichabod, which is probably best translated, no glory. And it's repeated for us. The glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Captured. And we might wonder, how in the world can this be? How in the world can God use this tragedy to accomplish His good purposes for His people? Death after death after death, thousands who die. And understand, this is God's judgment as He predicted through Samuel and through the man of God earlier. And it's, it's really too bad that such a judgment came not upon only those men, but upon the nation as they went into battle. But a judgment nonetheless. Judgment and tragedy and loss. And yet, the Lord will gain glory. According to His schedule and His scheme, even by judgment and tragedy and loss. You see, that ark, is patterned. It's patterned. It's a model, it's a replica of what? Of the throne above. And that's where we come to the last throne. We've seen the exiled throne in Philistia, the empty throne in Shiloh. And thirdly, we see the established throne in heaven. See, the throne the Ark of the Covenant where, where the Lord is enthroned on the cherubim, it was patterned right from the beginning. Exodus 25, God shows Moses a pattern. Pattern of what? Of his heavenly throne. The whole tabernacle is to be a pattern, to be a picture of God's dwelling place in heaven. There's these cherubim, angels overshadowing the mercy seat. And God invisibly would reveal himself gloriously to his people there. Why? Because those angels are the picture, the reality that there are angels surrounding him in heaven. Real angels, not just golden ones. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 speaks of the ark and other things and says that they're a copy of heavenly things. A copy, a pattern. Psalm 103 verse 19 tells us this, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. See, we can't manipulate the Almighty. We shouldn't try to twist the arm of God. God will gain glory according to His schedule and His scheme. And what they did is they tried to make God, they tried to use God's glory and think, well, if we lose the battle, then God might be blasphemed among the nations. He might be dishonored. So they try to manipulate God in their own designs. And now, let me ask you this regarding the tragedy and the loss and the heartbreak. When such things happen, we 
should at least have the humility to ask, and of, of course this is not always the case, many times it's not the case, we should have the humility to at least ask, is there something clear and obvious that I need to repent of? Could this in any way be God's discipline for my sin? Many times it may not be. There may not be anything clear. There may not be anything on your conscience. But of course in this instance, it was plain to all that there was sin among God's people and they would not repent. They would not turn from it. And this is the result of that. This heartbreak, this tragedy and loss. May we be quick to amend our ways. Lest destruction come. And the, if, if you're sitting here today and you haven't humbled yourself before the Lord, you need to understand that these sorts of judgments we read in Scripture, they are only an in-time small manifestation of God's eternal judgment. Each of us must humble ourselves before our Maker, repent of our sins and trust in the Lord and submit ourselves to Him. Trust in forgiveness through His Son. And so we might wonder, what is God doing with with circumstances such as this? It's a reminder as well, we need to submit to divine wisdom and His sovereignty and not knowing what He might be doing and realizing that His ways are higher than our ways, His thoughts above our thoughts. And there may be times where you look out at the world around you, you look out at the circumstances in your life and the circumstances around you, and you are tempted to despair, and you think, what is going on right now? You think, the glory of God has departed. What is God doing in this world? I don't understand. And you become depressed. Perhaps you see the decline of Christian culture in the West, and you see an increase in Islam, and Hinduism, and paganism, and Sikhism, and secular humanism, and all these things, and they're, they're more and more prevalent, and you think, this isn't how it was when I was a child. This wasn't how it was when I grew up. The glory of God has departed. What is God doing? What is, what is happening right now? Maybe you wonder that. And we, we have to, with humility, submit to the sovereign hand of God and realize there is an established throne in heaven. And we don't always understand all of God's purposes. And yet there are things that He has promised and there are things we can be certain of. And one thing we can be certain of is this. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you're concerned about the glory of God, rightly so, understand that God will be glorified among the nations. One way or another, He will gain the glory He deserves. And people may start stop celebrating Easter and Christmas, and they may start celebrating Ramadan and Diwali and Pride, and you may be just depressed and despairing and think the glory of God has departed, and yet understand that perhaps in this way, with this increase around us, perhaps as people move in, 
or as people expose sin in their own hearts, perhaps in this way, God is preparing opportunity for the light of the gospel to go to some of these people. You know what God's doing in chapter 4 and sending the ark into Philistia? He's about to do something amazing in Philistia and showing forth his glory to those folks. I won't spoil it. I know many of you know your Bibles quite well. I won't preach ahead and go into all that. But sometimes the Lord does these confusing things where we feel like, what is going on? And He's actually preparing gospel opportunities where He can glorify Himself and reveal Himself to idolaters, to those who rebel against Him, to those who blaspheme His name, that He might win them as His own people. You know, there's... uh, times as well where what the Lord is doing is He's cleaning house. He's getting rid of false teachers, false prophets, false leaders. Think um, think of Bruxy uh, Cavey, church that I was in before. He was a pastor previously. And many people thought those were the glory days under Bruxy because the church blew up with enthusiasm. And there were some things that happened with his family. He left. He started the meeting house and for decades he was there. And what we come to understand is he taught false things. He abused his office. He committed immorality. And God exposed it all. And those folks that were involved in that movement, they might well say, the glory of God has departed. What is God doing? What has God done? When leaders in the church abuse their office through sin and through false teaching and through immorality, gross sin, God will expose it. God will punish it. For the unconverted. And many times he'll do it in this life, in this world, not always only in judgment. Sometimes he'll do it now. And that is unnerving because it's it's out in the open, the whole world knows about it. And you think, oh, this makes me cringe. That that people might slander God as a result. And maybe that's what Eli was concerned about. That people might slander the Lord because the Ark of the Covenant goes into Philistia. But the truth is, his own sons were blaspheming God. And he would not restrain them. And the whole priesthood in Israel was corrupted. And what God seems to be doing is maybe, maybe what the Lord is saying here is, first I'll be glorified among my people. And I'll be glorified among the nations as well. And I'll do it in my own way, in my own time. He will gain glory according to His schedule and His scheme, even by judgment, tragedy, and loss. And He does not owe us any sort of explanation. And there's been times in church church history as well, you have uh, the Hagia Sophia, which for almost a thousand years was the biggest cathedral the world had known in Istanbul. 
And what happened? It was taken over by Muslims and turned into a mosque. And you'd say the glory of God is the part of what's going on. Or you have a church in Hamilton that mainline denomination and they sell their building, it gets turned into apartments. And you might think, well, the glory of God is the part of what's going on. Maybe the Lord, sometimes, and I don't want to speak to every situation, I don't want to be insensitive, even uh, for this is the schedule of my preaching. I don't want to be insensitive about what's going on here in this uh, congregation. But, but generally speaking, not in every case, generally speaking, sometimes what the Lord does is when a church rebels against Him and won't repent of sin and teaches false things, Christ says in Revelation to the church in Ephesus, if you don't repent, I will remove my light. The glory of God will depart from a church that refuses to repent, that refuses to teach right things. God will see to that. And I say all this because, brothers and sisters, may we not be so arrogant to say, that could never happen here. Because we need to, through years to come, generation by generation, preach the same gospel, the same word, continue to watch our life and our doctrine closely, continue to try to align ourselves with God's word, not become proud, not treat lightly the things of God, not cease to proclaim the gospel, not cease to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Year by year, decade by decade, we must do that. Otherwise, may this be a warning to us. May the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 to the church in Ephesus be a warning to us that the Lord can withdraw His glory, His light, from churches that refuse to repent as these folks did here in 1 Samuel. And yet, brothers and sisters, perhaps the most striking time of all where, where believers might have been tempted to despair through doubt is when God sent His Son into the world. God the Son incarnate. Jesus Christ came into our world. He tabernacled among us to be a little bit more literal with the translation of John 1. He dwelt among us. And God's glory was revealed through His own Son, through through Jesus Christ. And He preached and He healed and and He revealed the Father through His perfect life And what happened? Jesus was crucified at the hands of sinful men. And His disciples might have thought, what is God doing? Though He told them what was going on. They they scattered at His crucifixion. And maybe they might have been tempted to use words such as this, the glory of God has departed. And indeed, Christ is the radiance of God's glory. And He died on the cross for our sin. He was crushed for our transgressions. And yet what God was doing is the greatest thing of all. He was accomplishing our redemption, working out our atonement through His Son. And indeed, He raised His Son from the dead. He defeated death for all who would believe. And though Christ was exiled on the cross, 
God triumphed through His Son over Satan, sin, and death. And so, we shouldn't despair when tragedy and when loss and when heartache and and judgment and all manner of things happen on our world. Understand, there is a throne in heaven, an established throne. God is on the throne. And He will gain glory according to His schedule and His scheme as He sees fit. And we can rest in that reality and trust in Him and not be discouraged. Let's close the prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You that even in depressing circumstances in our world, death, destruction, war, bloodshed, all manner of evil committed, corrupt practices among those who would be leaders, even when all manner of things like these occur, encourage our hearts that You are on the throne and that You are the Almighty God, the Glorious One. And You will accomplish all Your purpose and You will rescue us, Your people. You've already rescued us from our sin and You will redeem us even from the grave when Christ returns. We thank You for that hope. And we pray, God, that we would ever live in light of that hope and make known Your praise to the world. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to conclude with one final...